Hello, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. We continue now with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 99, The Doubloon Ere now it has been related how Ahab was wont to pace his quarter-deck, taking regular turns at either limit, the binnacle and the mainmast. But in the multiplicity of other things requiring narration, it has not been added how that sometimes in these walks, when most plunged in his mood, he was wont to pause and turn at each spot, and stand there strangely eyeing the particular object before him. When he halted before the binnacle, with his glance fastened on the pointed needle in the compass, that glance shot like a javelin with the pointed intensity of his purpose. And when, resuming his walk, he again paused before the mainmast, then, as the same riveted glance fastened upon the riveted gold coin there, he still wore the same aspect of nailed firmness, only dashed with a certain wild longing, if not hopefulness. But one morning, turning to pass the doubloon, he seemed to be newly attracted by the strange figures and inscriptions stamped on it, as though now for the first time beginning to interpret for himself in some monomaniac way whatever significance might lurk in them. At some certain significance lurks in all things, else all things are little worth, and the round world itself but an empty cipher, except to sell by the cartload, as they do hills about Boston, to fill up some morass in the Milky Way. Now this doubloon was of purest virgin gold, raked somewhere out of the heart of gorgeous hills, whence, east and west, over golden sands, the headwaters of many a pactolous flows. And though now nailed amidst all the rustiness of iron bolts and the verdigris of copper spikes, yet untouchable and immaculate to any foulness, it still preserved its keto glow. Nor, though passed amongst a ruthless crew, and every hour passed by ruthless hands, and through the live-long nights shrouded with thick darkness which might cover any pilfering approach. Nevertheless, every sunrise found the doubloon where the sunset left it last. For it was set apart and sanctified to one awe-striking end, and however wanton in their sailor ways, one and all, the mariners revered it as the white whale's talisman. Sometimes they talked it over in the weary watch by night, wondering whose it was to be at last, and whether he would ever live to spend it. Now those noble golden coins of South America are as metals of the sun and tropic token pieces. Here palms, alpacas, and volcanoes, suns, disks, and stars, ecliptics, horns of plenty, and rich banners waving, are in luxuriant profusion stamped, so that the precious gold seems almost to derive an added preciousness and enhancing glories by passing through those fancy mints so Spanishly poetic. It so chanced that the doubloon of the Pequod was a most wealthy example of these things. 
On its round border, it bore the letters República del Ecuador, Quito. So this bright coin came from a country planted in the middle of the world and beneath the great equator and named after it. And it had been cast midway up the Andes in the unwaning climb that knows no autumn. Zoned by those letters, you saw the likeness of three Andes summits, from one a flame, a tower on another, on the third a crowing cock, while arching over all was a segment of the partitioned zodiac, the signs all marked with their usual cabalistics, and the keystone sun entering the equinoctial point at Libra. Before this equatorial coin, Ahab, not unobserved by others, was now pausing. There's something ever egotistical in mountain tops and towers, and all other grand and lofty things. Look here, three peaks as proud as Lucifer, the firm tower, that is Ahab, the volcano, that is Ahab, the courageous, the undaunted and victorious fowl, that too is Ahab. All are Ahab, and this round gold is but the image of the rounder globe, which, like a magician's glass, to each and every man in turn but mirrors back his own mysterious self. Great pains, small gains for those who ask the world to solve them. It cannot solve itself. Methinks now this coin son wears a ruddy face, but see, I he enters the sign of storms, the equinox. And but six months before he wheeled out of a former equinox at Aries, but from storm to storm, so be it then, born in throes, tis fit that man should live in pains and die in pangs, so be it then. Here's stout stuff for woe to work on, so be it then. No fairy fingers can have pressed the gold, but devil's claws must have left their moldings there since yesterday, murmured Starbuck to himself, leaning against the bulwarks. The old man seems to read Belshazzar's awful writing. I have never marked the coin inspectingly. He goes below, let me read a dark valley between three mighty heaven-abiding peaks that almost seem the trinity in some faint earthly symbol. So in this veil of death, God girds us round, and over all our gloom, the sun of righteousness still shines a beacon and a hope. If we bend down our eyes, the dark veil shows her moldy soil, but if we lift them, the bright sun meets our glance halfway to cheer. Yet, oh, the great sun is no fixture, and if, at midnight, we would fain snatch some sweet solace from him, we gaze for him in vain. This coin speaks wisely, mildly, truly, but still sadly to me. I will quit it, lest truth shake me falsely. There's now the old mogul, soliloquized Stubb by the triworks. He's been twigging it, and there goes Starbuck from the same, and both with faces which I should say might be somewhere within nine fathoms long. And all from looking at a piece of gold, 
Which did I have it now on Negro Hill or in Corlier's Hook? I'd not look at it very long ere spending it. Humph! In my poor, insignificant opinion, I regard this as queer. I have seen doubloons before now in my voyagings, your doubloons of old Spain, your doubloons of Peru, your doubloons of Chile, your doubloons of Bolivia, your doubloons of Popayan, and with plenty of gold mordores and pistoles and joes and half-joes and quarter-joes. What then should be there in this doubloon of the equator that is so killing wonderful? By Golconda, let me read it once. Halloa! There's signs and wonders truly. That now is what old Bowditch in his epitome calls the zodiac, and what my almanac below calls ditto. I'll get the almanac, and as I have heard devils can be raised with dabbles arithmetic, I'll try my hand at raising a meaning out of these queer curvicues here with the Massachusetts calendar. Here's the book. Let's see now. Signs and wonders, and the sun, he's always among them. Hem, hem, hem. Here they are. Here they go, all alive. Aries, or the ram, Taurus, or the bull, and Jemimai, here's Gemini himself, or the twins. Well, the sun he wheels among them, I here on the coin, he's just crossing the threshold between two of twelve sitting rooms all in a ring. Book, you lie there. The fact is, you books must know your places. You'll do to give us the bare words and facts, but we come in to supply the thoughts. That's my small experience, so far as the Massachusetts calendar and Bowditch's navigator and Dable's arithmetic go. Signs and wonders, eh? Pity if there is nothing wonderful in signs and significant in wonders. There's a clue somewhere. Wait a bit. Hist. Hark! By Jove, I have it! Look you, doubloon, your zodiac here is the life of man in one round chapter, and now I'll read it off, straight out of the book. Come, almanac. To begin, there's Ares, or the ram, lecherous dog, he begets us. Then Taurus, or the bull, he bumps us the first thing. Then Gemini, or the twins, that is, virtue and vice. We try to reach virtue, when lo, comes cancer the crab and drags us back. And here, going from virtue, Leo, a roaring lion, lies in the path. He gives a few fierce bites and surly dabs with his paw. We escape and hail Virgo, the virgin. That's our first love. We marry and think to be happy for I when pop comes Libra or the scales. Happiness weighed and found wanting. And while we are very sad about that, Lord, how we suddenly jump as Scorpio or the scorpion stings us in the rear. We are curing the wound when wang comes the arrow all round. Sagittarius or the archer is amusing himself. As we pluck out the shafts, stand aside. Here's the battering ram, Capricornus, or the goat, 
Full tilt he comes rushing, and headlong we are tossed, when Aquarius, or the water-bearer, pours out his whole deluge and drowns us, and to wind up with Pisces, or the fishes, we sleep. There's a sermon now, writ in high heaven, and the sun goes through it every year, and yet comes out of it all alive and hearty. Jollily he, aloft there, wheels through toil and trouble, and so, alo here, does jolly stub. Oh, jolly's the word for I, adieu to bloom. But stop, here comes little King Post, dodge round the triworks now, and let's hear what he'll have to say. There, he's before it, he'll out with something presently, so, so, he's beginning. I see nothing here but a round thing made of gold, and whoever raises a certain whale, this round thing belongs to him. So, what's all this staring been about? It is worth sixteen dollars, that's true, and at two cents the cigar, that's nine hundred and sixty cigars. I won't smoke dirty pipes like Stubb, but I like cigars. And here's nine hundred and sixty of them, so here goes Flask aloft to spy em out. Shall I call that wise or foolish now? If it be really wise, it has a foolish look to it. Yet, if it be really foolish, then it has a sort of wiseish look to it. But avast, here comes our old Mansk man, the old hearse driver he must have been. That is, before he took to the sea. He luffs up before the doubloon. Halloa! And goes round the other side of the mast. Why? There's a horseshoe nailed on that side. And now he's back again. What does that mean? Hark! He's muttering. Voice like an old worn-out coffee mill. Prick ears and listen. If the white whale be raised, it must be in a month and a day when the sun stands in some one of these signs. I've studied signs, and I know their marks. They were taught me two score years ago by the old witch in Copenhagen. Now, in what sign will the sun then be? The horseshoe sign, for there it is, right opposite the gold. And what's the horseshoe sign? The lion is the horseshoe sign, the roaring and devouring lion. Ship, old ship, my old head shakes to think of thee. There's another rendering now, but still one text. All sorts of men in one kind of world, you see. Dodge again, here comes Queequeg, all tattooing. Looks like the signs of the Zodiac himself. What says the cannibal? As I live, he's comparing notes, looking at his thigh bone. Thinks the sun is in the thigh? or in the calf, or in the bowels, I suppose, as the old women talk surgeon's astronomy in the back country. And by Jove, he's found something there in the vicinity of his thigh. I guess it's Sagittarius, or the archer. No, he don't know what to make of the doubloon. He takes it for an old button off some king's trousers. But aside again, here comes that ghost devil Fidala, tail coiled out of sight as usual, Oakum in the toes of his pumps, as usual. What does he say with that look of his? Ah, only makes a sign to the sign and bows himself. There is a sun on the coin. 
fire worshiper, depend upon it. Ho, more and more. This way comes Pip, poor boy. Would he had died or I. He's half horrible to me. He too has been watching all of these interpreters, myself included. And look now, he comes to read with that unearthly idiot face. Stand away again and hear him. Hark! I look, you look, he looks. We look, ye look, they look. Upon my soul, he's been studying Murray's grammar, improving his mind, poor fellow. But what's that he says now? Hist! I look, you look, he looks. We look, ye look, they look. Why, he's getting it by heart. Hist again. I look, you look, he looks. We look, ye look, they look. Well, that's funny. And I, you, and he, and we, ye, and they are all bats. And I'm a crow, especially when I stand atop of this pine tree here. Caw, 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 caw. Ain't I a crow? And where's the scarecrow? There he stands, two bones stuck into a pair of old trousers and two more poked into the sleeves of an old jacket. Wonder if he means me. Complimentary. Poor lad. I could go hang myself. Anyway, for the present, I'll quit Pip's vicinity. I can stand the rest, for they have plain wits, but he's too crazy witty for my sanity. So, so, I leave him muttering. Here's the ship's navel, this doubloon here, and they are all on fire to unscrew it. But, unscrew your navel, and what's the consequence? Then again, if it stays here, that is ugly too, for when aught's nailed to the mast, it's a sign that things grow desperate. Ha ha, old Ahab, the white whale, he'll nail ye. This is a pine tree. My father, in old Tolland County, cut down a pine tree once and found a silver ring grown over in it, some old darkie's wedding ring. How did it get there? And so they'll say in the resurrection, when they come to fish up this old mast and find a doubloon lodged in it, with bedded oysters for the shaggy bark. Oh, the gold, the precious, precious gold, the green miser will hoard ye soon. Hish, hish, God goes among the world's blackberrying. Cook, ho, cook, and cook us. Jenny, hey, 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 Jenny, Jenny, and get your hoe cake done. Chapter 100, Leg and Arm The Pequod of Nantucket meets the Samuel Enderby of London. Ship ahoy! Hast seen the white whale? So cried Ahab, once more hailing a ship showing English colors, bearing down under the stern. Trumpet to mouth, the old man was standing in his hoisted quarter boat, his ivory leg plainly revealed to the stranger captain, who was carelessly reclining in his own boat's bow. He was a darkly tanned, burly, good-natured, fine-looking man of sixty or thereabouts, 
dressed in a spacious roundabout that hung round him in festoons of blue pilot cloth, and one empty arm of his jacket streamed behind him like the broidered arm of a hussar's surcoat. Hast seen the white whale? See you this? And withdrawing it from the folds that had hidden it, he held up a white arm of sperm whale bone, terminating in a wooden head like a mallet. Man my boat, cried Ahab impetuously and tossing about the oars near him. Stand by to lower. In less than a minute, without quitting his little craft, he and his crew were dropped to the water and were soon alongside of the stranger. But here a curious difficulty presented itself. In the excitement of the moment, Ahab had forgotten that since the loss of his legs, he had never once stepped on board of any vessel at sea but his own, and then it was always by an ingenious and very handy mechanical contrivance peculiar to the Pequod, and a thing not to be rigged and shipped in any other vessel at a moment's warning. Now, it is no very easy matter for anybody, except those who are almost hourly used to it, like whalemen, to clamber up a ship's side from a boat on the open sea. For the great swells now lift the boat high up towards the bulwarks and then instantaneously drop it halfway down to the kilson. So deprived of one leg, and the strange ship, of course, being altogether unsupplied with the kindly invention, Ahab now found himself objectively reduced to a clumsy landsman again hopelessly eyeing the uncertain, changeful height he could hardly hope to attain. It has before been hinted, perhaps, that every little untoward circumstance that befell him, and which indirectly sprang from his luckless mishap, almost invariably irritated or exasperated Ahab. And in the present instance, all this was heightened by the sight of the two officers of the strange ship leaning over the side by the perpendicular ladder of nailed cleats there and swinging towards him a pair of tastefully ornamented man-ropes. For at first they did not seem to bethink them that a one-legged man must be too much of a cripple to use their sea banisters. But this awkwardness only lasted a minute, because the strange captain, observing at a glance how affairs stood, cried out, I see, I see, a vast heaving there. Jump, boys, and swing over the cutting tackle. As good luck would have it, they had had a whale alongside a day or two previous, and the great tackles were still aloft, and the massive curved blubber hook, now clean and dry, was still attached to the end. This was quickly lowered to Ahab, who at once, comprehending it all, slid his solitary thigh into the curve of the hook. It was like sitting in the fluke of an anchor or the crotch of an apple tree. And then giving the word, held himself fast, and at the same time also helped to hoist his own weight by pulling hand over hand upon one of the running parts of the tackle. Soon he was carefully swung inside the high bulwarks and gently landed upon the capstan head. With his ivory arm frankly thrust forth in welcome, the other captain advanced, and Ahab, putting out his ivory leg and crossing the ivory arm like two swordfish blades, cried out in his walrus way, Aye, aye, hearty, let us shake bones together, 
an arm and a leg, an arm that never can shrink, do you see, and a leg that can never run. Where didst thou see the white whale? How long ago? The white whale, said the Englishman, pointing his ivory arms towards the east and taking a rueful sight along it as if it had been a telescope. There I saw him on the line last season. And he took that arm off, did he? asked Ahab, now sliding down from the capstan and resting on the Englishman's shoulder as he did so. Aye, he was the cause of it, at least, and that leg, too. Spin me the yarn, said Ahab. How was it? It was the first time in my life that I ever cruised on the line, began the Englishman. I was ignorant of the white whale at the time. Well, one day we lowered for a pod of four or five whales, and my boat fastened to one of them. A regular circus horse was he, too, that went milling and milling round so that my boat's crew could only trim dish by sitting all their sterns on the outer gunwale. Presently, up breaches from the bottom of the sea a bouncing great whale with a milky white head and hump, all crow's feet and wrinkles. It was he! It was he! cried Ahab, suddenly letting out his suspended breath. And harpoons sticking in near his starboard fin. Ay, ay, they were mine, my irons, cried Ahab exultingly. But on! Give me a chance, then, said the Englishman good-humouredly. Well, this old great-grandfather, with the white head and hump, runs all afoam into the pod, and goes to snapping furiously at my fast line. Ay, I see! Wanted to part it. Free the fast fish. An old trick. I know him. How it was exactly, continued the one-armed commander, I do not know. But in biting the line, it got foul of his teeth. Caught there somehow. But we didn't know it then. So that when we afterwards pulled on the line, bounce we came plump onto this hump. Instead of the other whales that went off to windward, all fluking. Seeing how matters stood, and what a noble great whale it was, the noblest and biggest I ever saw, sir, in my life, I resolved to capture him, spite of the boiling rage he seemed to be in. And, thinking the haphazard line would get loose, or the tooth it was tangled to might draw, for I have seen a devil of a boat's crew for a pull on a whale line. Seeing all this, I say, I jumped into my first mate's boat, Mr. Mounttop's here. By the way, Captain, Mounttop, Mounttop, the captain. As I was saying, I jumped into Mounttop's boat, which, you see, was gunnel and gunnel with mine then, and snatching the first harpoon, let this old great-grandfather have it. But, Lord, look you, sir, hearts and souls alive, man. The next instant, in a jiff, I was blind as a bat, both eyes out, all befogged and bedeadened with black foam, the whale's tail looming straight up out of it, perpendicular in the air like a marble steeple. No use turning at all, then, but as I was groping at midday with a blinding sun, 
all crown jewels, as I was groping, I say, after the second iron to toss it overboard, down comes the tail like a lima tower, cutting my boat in two, leaving each half in splinters and flukes first, the white hump backed through the wreck as though it was all chips. We all struck out. To escape his terrible flailings, I seized hold of my harpoon pole sticking in him and for a moment clung to that like a sucking fish. But a combing sea dashed me off, and at the same instant the fish taking one good dart forwards went down like a flash, and the barb of that cursed second iron towing along near me caught me here, clapping his hand just below his shoulder. Yes, Caught me just here, I say, and bore me down to hell's flames, I was thinking. When, when, all of a sudden, thank the good God, the barb ripped its way along the flesh, clear along the whole length of my arm, came out nigh my wrist, and I floated up. And that gentleman there will tell you the rest. By the way, Captain, Dr. Bunger, ship's surgeon. Bunger, my lad, the captain. Now, Bunger boy, spin your part of the yarn. The professional gentleman thus familiarly pointed out had been all the time standing near them with nothing specific visible to denote his gentlemanly rank on board. His face was an exceedingly round but sober one. He was dressed in a faded blue woolen frock or shirt and patched trousers, and had thus far been dividing his attention between a marling spike he held in one hand and a pillbox held in the other, occasionally casting a critical glance at the ivory limbs of the two crippled captains. But at his superior's introduction of him to Ahab, he politely bowed and straightway went on to do his captain's bidding. It was a shocking bad wound, began the whale surgeon, and taking my advice, Captain Boomer here stood our old Sammy. Samuel Enderby is the name of my ship, interrupted the one-armed captain addressing Aham. Go on, boy. Stood our old Sammy off to the northward to get out of the blazing hot weather there on the line. But it was no use. I did all I could. Sat up with him nights. Was very severe with him in the matter of diet. Oh, very severe, chimed in the patient himself, then suddenly altering his voice. Drinking hot rum totties with me every night, till he couldn't see to put on the bandages, and sending me to bed half seas over about three o'clock in the morning. Oh, ye stars, he sat up with me indeed, and was very severe in my diet. Oh, a great watcher, and very dietetically severe, is Dr. Bunger. Bunger, you old dog, laugh out, why don't ye? You know you're a precious jolly rascal. But heave ahead, boy. I'd rather be killed by you than kept alive by any other man. My captain, you must have ere this perceived, respected sir, said the imperturbable, godly-looking Bunger, slightly bowing to Ahab, is apt to be facetious at times. He spins us many clever things of that sort. But I may as well say, en passant, as the French remark, that I myself, that is to say, Jack Bunger, late of the reverend clergy, am a strict total abstinence man, 
I never drink. Water, cried the captain. He never drinks it. It's a sort of fits to him. Fresh water throws him into the hydrophobia. But go on, go on with the arm story. Yes, I may as well, said the surgeon coolly. I was about observing, sir, before Captain Boomer's facetious interruption, that spite of my best and severest endeavors, the wound kept getting worse and worse. The truth was, sir, it was as ugly gaping wound as surgeon ever saw, more than two feet and several inches long. I measured it with the lead line. In short, it grew black. I knew what was threatened, and off it came. But I had no hand in shipping that ivory arm there. That thing is against all rule, pointing at it with the marling spike. That is the captain's work, not mine. He ordered the carpenter to make it. He had that club hammer there put to the end to knock someone's brains out with, I suppose, as he tried mine once. He flies into diabolical passions sometimes. Do you see this dent, sir? removing his hat and brushing aside his hair and exposing a bowl-like cavity in his skull, but which bore not the slightest scarry trace nor any token of ever having been a wound. Well, the captain there will tell you how that came here. He knows. No, I don't, said the captain, but his mother did. He was born with it. Oh, you solemn rogue, you, you bunger. Was there ever such another bunger in the watery world? Bunger, when you die, you want to die in pickle, you dog. You should be preserved to future ages, you rascal. What became of the white whale? Now, cried Ahab, who thus far had been impatiently listening to this by play between the two Englishmen. Oh, cried the one-armed captain. Oh, yes, well, after he sounded, we didn't see him again for some time. In fact, as I before hinted, I didn't then know what whale it was that had served me such a trick, till some time afterwards, when coming back to the line, we heard about Moby Dick, as some call him, and then I knew it was he. Didst thou cross his wake again? Twice. But could not fasten? Didn't want to try to. Ain't one limb enough? What should I do without this other arm? Am I thinking Moby Dick doesn't bite so much as he swallows? Well then, interrupted Bunger, give him your left arm for bait to get the right. Do you know, gentlemen, very gravely and mathematically bowing to each captain in succession, do you know, gentlemen, that the digestive organs of the whale are so inscrutably constructed by divine providence that it is quite impossible for him to completely digest even a man's arm? And he knows it too, so that what you take for the white whale's malice is only his awkwardness. For he never means to swallow a single limb. He only thinks to terrify by feints. Sometimes he is like the old juggling fellow, formerly a patient of mine in Ceylon, that making believe swallow jackknives, once upon a time let one drop into him in good earnest and there it stayed for a twelve-month or more. When I gave him an emetic, and he heaved it up in small tacks, d'ye see? No possible way for him to digest that jackknife and fully incorporate it into his general bodily system. 
Yes, Captain Boomer, if you are quick enough about it and have a mind to pawn one arm for the sake of the privilege of giving decent burial to the other, why, in that case, the arm is yours. Only let the whale have another chance at you shortly. That's all. No, thank ye, Bunger, said the English captain. He's welcome to the arm he has, since I can't help it, and didn't know him then. But not to another one. No more white whales for me. I've lowered for him once, and that has satisfied me. There would be great glory in killing him, I know that. And there is a shipload of precious sperm in him. But, hark ye, he's best let alone. Don't you think so, Captain? Glancing at the ivory leg. He is, but he will still be hunted for all that. What is best let alone? That accursed thing is not always what least allures. He's all a magnet. How long since thou sawst him last? Which way heading? Bless my soul and curse the foul fiends, cried Bunger, stoopingly walking round Ahab and like a dog strangely snuffing. This man's blood, bring the thermometer. It's at the boiling point. His pulse makes these planks beat, sir. Taking a lancet from his pocket and drawing near Ahab's arm. Avast, roared Ahab, dashing him against the bulwarks. Man the boat. Which way heading? Good God, cried the English captain to whom the question was put. What's the matter? He was heading east, I think. Is your captain crazy? Whispering to Fadala. But Fadala, putting a finger on his lip, slid over the bulwarks to take the boat steering oar, and Ahab, swinging the cutting tackle towards him, commanded the ship's sailors to stand by to lower. In a moment he was standing in the boat's stern, and the Manila men were springing to their oars. In vain the English captain hailed him, with back to the stranger ship and face set like a flint to his own, Ahab stood upright till alongside of the Pequod. Chapter 101. The Decanter Ere the English ship fades from sight, be it set down here that she hailed from London, and was named after the late Samuel Enderby, merchant of that city, the original of the famous whaling house of Enderby and Sons, a house which, in my poor whaleman's opinion, comes not far behind the united royal houses of the Tudors and the Bourbons, in point of real historical interest. How long, prior to the year of our Lord, 1775, this great whaling house was in existence? My numerous fish documents do not make plain. But in that year, 1775, it fitted out the first English ships that ever regularly hunted the sperm whale. Though for some score of years previous, ever since 1726, our valiant coffins and macies of Nantucket and the vineyard had in large fleets pursued that leviathan, but only in the North and South Atlantic, not elsewhere. Be it distinctly recorded here, that the Nantucketers were the first among mankind to harpoon with civilized steel the great sperm whale, and that for half a century they were the only people of the whole globe who so harpooned him. In 1778, 
a fine ship, the Amelia, fitted out for the express purpose and at the sole charge of the vigorous Enderbys, boldly rounded Cape Horn, and was the first among the nations to lower a whaleboat of any sort in the Great South Sea. The voyage was a skillful and lucky one, and returning to her berth with her hold full of the precious sperm, the Amelia's example was soon followed by other ships, English and American, and thus the vast sperm whale grounds of the Pacific were thrown open. But not content with this good deed, the indefatigable house again bestirred itself. Samuel and all his sons, how many their mother only knows, and under their immediate auspices, and partly, I think, at their expense, the British government was induced to send the sloop-of-war Rattler on a whaling voyage of discovery into the South Sea. Commanded by a naval post-captain, the Rattler made a rattling voyage of it and did some service. How much does not appear? But this is not all. In 1819, the same house fitted out a discovery whaleship of their own to go on a tasting cruise to the remote waters of Japan. That ship, well called the Siren, made a noble experimental cruise and it was thus that the great Japanese whaling ground first became generally known. The Siren, in this famous voyage, was commanded by a Captain Coffin, a Nantucketer. All honor to the Enderbys, therefore, whose house, I think, exists to the present day, though doubtless the original Samuel must long ago have slipped his cable for the great South Sea of the other world. The ship named after him was worthy of the honor, being a very fast sailor and a noble craft in every way. I boarded her once at midnight somewhere off the Patagonian coast and drank good flip down in the forecastle. It was a fine gam we had, and they were all trumps, every soul on board. A short life to them and a jolly death. And that fine gam I had, long, very long after old Ahab touched her planks with his ivory heel, it minds me of the noble, solid, Saxon hospitality of that ship, and may my parson forget me and the devil remember me if I ever lose sight of it. Flip? Did I say we had a flip? Yes, and we flipped it at the rate of ten gallons the hour, and when the squall came, for it's squally off there by Patagonia, and all hands, visitors and all, were called to reef topsails, we were so top-heavy that we had to swing each other aloft in bowlines. And we ignorantly furled the skirts of our jackets into the sails so that we hung there, reefed fast in the howling gale, a warning example to all drunken tars. However, the mast did not go overboard, and by and by we scrambled down, so sober that we had to pass the flip again, though the savage salt spray bursting down the forecastle scuttle rather too much diluted and pickled it to my taste. The beef was fine, tough, but with body in it. They said it was bull beef, others that it was dromedary beef, but I do not know for certain how that was. They had dumplings too, small but substantial, symmetrically globular, and indestructible dumplings. I fancied that you could feel them, 
and roll them about in you after they were swallowed. If you stooped over too far forward, you risked their pitching out of you like billiard balls. The bread, but that couldn't be helped. Besides, it was an anti-scorbutic. In short, the bread contained only the fresh fare they had. But the forecastle was not very light, and it was very easy to step over into a dark corner when you ate it. But all in all, taking her from truck to helm, considering the dimensions of the cook's boilers, including his own live parchment boilers, fore and aft, I say the Samuel Enderby was a jolly ship of good fare and plenty, fine flip and strong, crack fellows all, and capital from boot heels to hat band. But why was it, think ye, that the Samuel Enderby and some other English whalers I know of, not all though, were such famous hospitable ships that passed round the beef and the bread and the can and the joke, and were not soon weary of eating and drinking and laughing? I will tell you. The abounding good cheer of these English whalers is matter for historical research, nor have I been at all sparing of historical whale research when it has seemed needed. The English were preceded in the whale fishery by the Hollanders, Zealanders, and Danes, from whom they derived many terms still extant in the fishery, and what is yet more, their fat old fashions touching plenty to eat and drink. For, as a general thing, the English merchant ship scrimps her crew, but not so the English whaler. Hence, in the English, this thing of whaling good cheer is not normal and natural, but incidental and particular, and therefore must have some special origin, which is here pointed out and will be still further elucidated. During my researches in the Leviathanic histories, I stumbled upon an ancient Dutch volume, which, by the musty whaling smell of it, I knew must be about whalers. The title was Dan Koopman, wherefore I concluded that this must be the invaluable memoirs of some Amsterdam cooper in the fishery, as every whale ship must carry its cooper. I was reinforced in this opinion by seeing that it was the production of one Fitz Swackhammer. But my friend Dr. Snodhead, a very learned man, professor of low Dutch and high German in the College of Santa Claus and St. Potts, to whom I handed the work for translation, giving him a box of sperm candles for his trouble. This same Dr. Snodhead, so soon as he spied the book, assured me that Dan Koopman did not mean the Cooper, but the merchant. In short, this ancient and learned low Dutch book treated of the commerce of Holland, and among other subjects, contained a very interesting account of its whale fishery, and in this chapter it was headed Schmeer, or Fat, that I found a long detailed list of the outfits for the larders and cellars of 180 sail of Dutch whalemen. From which list, as translated by Dr. Snodhead, I transcribe the following. 400,000 pounds of beef, 60,000 pounds of Friesland pork, 150,000 pounds of stock fish, 550,000 pounds of biscuit, 72,000 pounds of soft bread, 
2,800 firkins of butter, 20,000 pounds texel and laden cheese, 140,000 pounds cheese, probably an inferior article, 550 anchors of Geneva, 10,800 barrels of beer. Most statistical tables are parchingly dry in the reading. Not so in the present case, however, where the reader is flooded with the whole pipes, barrels, quarts, and gills of good gin and good cheer. At the time, I devoted three days to the studious digesting of all this beer, beef, and bread, during which many profound thoughts were incidentally suggested to me, capable of a transcendental and platonic application. And furthermore, I compiled supplementary tables of my own, touching the probable quantity of stockfish, etc., consumed by every low Dutch harpooner in that ancient Greenland and Spitsbergen whale fishery. In the first place, the amount of butter and texel and laden cheese consumed seems amazing. I impute it, though, to their naturally unctuous natures being rendered still more unctuous by the nature of their vocation, and especially by their pursuing the game in those frigid polar seas on the very coast of that Eskimo country where the convivial natives pledge each other in bumpers of train oil. The quantity of beer, too, is very large, 10,800 barrels. Now, as those polar fisheries could only be prosecuted in the short summer of that climate, so that the whole cruise of one of these Dutch whalemen, including the short voyage to and from the Spitzenbergen Sea, did not much exceed three months, say, and reckoning thirty men to each of their fleet of one hundred and eighty sail, we have five thousand four hundred low Dutch seamen in all. Therefore, I say, we have precisely two barrels of beer per man, exclusive of his fair proportion of that 550 anchors of gin. Now, whether these gin and beer harpooners, so fuddled as one might fancy them to have been, were the right sort of men to stand up in a boat's head and take good aim at flying whales, this would seem somewhat improbable. Yet they did aim at them, and hit them too. But this was very far north, be it remembered, where beer agrees well with the Constitution. Upon the equator, in our southern fishery, beer would be apt to make the harpooner sleepy at the masthead and boozy in his boat, and grievous loss might ensue to Nantucket and New Bedford. But no more. Enough has been said to show that the old Dutch whalers of two or three centuries ago were high livers, and that the English whalers have not neglected so excellent an example. For they say, when cruising in an empty ship, if you can get nothing better out of the world, get a good dinner out of it at least, and this empties the decanter. This has been Moby Dick. Please join us next time when we learn of a bower in the Arsacide.